Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. If you're new to this whole world of baby led weaning and starting solid foods, you might still be on the fence as to whether this approach is going to work for you. And if that's the case, I want to send you my free feeding guide called Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby? This is a guide that contains a decision tree map that you can work your way through to determine if this is the right approach for you guys and then when it's time to start. Grab your copy of Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby on my website at babyledweaning.co slash resources. My job as a researcher is, as you mentioned, to be generating evidence. So I will not talk directly to the food industry because I really need to keep as much as possible independent and outsider uh, influence. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Hello and welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Ada Garcia. She is a researcher and senior lecturer at Glasgow University in Scotland. And Dr. Garcia's work focuses on commercial baby foods in the United Kingdom. And I don't want you guys to be like, oh, this is just going to be an episode where they talk smack about commercial baby food. And there's a little bit of that. But I wanted to have Dr. Garcia on because she recently did a study looking at the impact of marketing claims on commercial baby foods. And what really kind of jumped out to me was that in this study, she found that in the United Kingdom, 72% of the snacks being sold to parents had baby led weaning claims on the front of them. Now, that's certainly not the situation in the United States. Baby led weaning is something that was originated with Jill Rapley in the United Kingdom. It means a little bit different, the term weaning in the UK versus the United States. And we've done lots of content and interviews with Dr. Rapley on that here on the podcast. But I was just interested how the marketing of these products differs a little bit in the UK versus the United States. And some of Dr. Garcia's findings are really very interesting. She's actually been in this field for about 13 years, her own twins, which is why she got interested in this, just turned 13, she said. So she's sharing a little bit in the interview about the history of this research and kind of why she's been doing it and what's been changing and what doesn't change and why when parents go to the store and they see these foods and they think it, it says, oh, great for little hands and good for gross and fine motor skill development and why there's absolutely no evidence to support any of those claims. And so the intent of the episode is not to bash commercial baby foods. I know that on occasion for convenience, for if you're in a pinch, you don't feel like cooking, you may be relying on commercial baby foods. But I think it's very important that we understand the marketing that goes in to making you choose one product over another and why oftentimes, we see this a lot in food marketing, what you see is not really what you get. So with no further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Ada Garcia talking about misleading marketing claims on baby foods. Here she is. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm so good. I'm really excited to chat about your findings about like misleading claims on baby foods in the UK. And we can chat a little about how that compares to things in the US. 
But before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the type of work that you do? Yeah, sure. I am a nutritionist. I come originally from Guatemala in Central America, but I've been in the uh, in the UK for over 15 years and in Europe for about 20 years. I work as a researcher. I am an academic at the University of Glasgow, and uh, my research focuses on infancy and childhood diets. I work both in affluent and less affluent contexts. So my whole idea is to generate evidence that informs programs that informs uh, recommendations. And I have done some work in the area of commercial baby foods here in the UK, thinking about the quality of commercial baby foods and recently about the extensive use of claims in commercial baby foods. And I know we were chatting before the episode today and you were saying that you're a mom of twins. They just turned 13 boy girl twins. I'm also a twin mom. So it's always nice to connect about raising multiples, but you had mentioned that you actually kind of got your start or your interest in commercial baby food as a result of them. So do you mind sharing any experiences about feeding your twins and how that might have informed your work today? Yes, yes. Before I I started working in in this area, I wasn't really interested in in baby food. I was doing more dietary fiber and other type of research with adults. But then I had the babies and I was traveling when they were around seven months of age or eight we were going up to one of the islands here in, in the Hebrides in, in Scotland, and I didn't have homemade food with me because uh, I ran out of it. So I went to the canteen or the cafeteria in the ferry and I got a jar and uh, I tried to give it to the babies and they will just not take it. They were absolutely in denial. And then I, I decided, OK, so I'm going to give it a go and I'm going to try this, how it tastes. and. I just then understood why they didn't like it. Uh, It was just a mix of different fruit and veg, and it had a little bit of uh, texture as well with uh, bits and pieces, and it just didn't taste at all of anything that I would eat. And after that, I thought, well, this is interesting. What is in here? What what ingredients are they using? Uh, How nutritious is this? You know, what type of flavors do they have? And that's how I came with this first idea of exploring the baby food market and trying to understand what the ingredients are and what the nutritional composition of these baby foods is. So we that's, that's the whole idea, how it started. And, and after that, I, I just realized that it wasn't something that I, I as, a, as a nutritionist and, and as a mom, wanted to give to my children because I just don't, didn't like the flavors and the textures. One of the reasons why I originally contacted you is because I was interested in your most recent study, the study that is about the extensive use of unpacked promotional claims on commercial baby foods in the UK. But then in talking to you, you told me that your first study was actually in 2013. We're kind of talking about the industry reaction to when you, you know, do an expose on, you know, what's in these commercial baby foods, et cetera. Could you share a little bit about that first study in 2013, how you kind of got settled formally working in commercial baby food from a research standpoint? Yes, yes. So we did a survey. Well, the format of our research is basically exploring all the baby foods that are available in the in the UK market. We go and visit uh, supermarkets and create a very comprehensive list of all the ingredients, the nutritional composition as reported in the in the foods. And the, f- the very first time I was quite interested on looking at the nutrient content, but also each of these baby foods has an age recommendation here in the UK. And I found out that it was starting from four months, which is 
going against the World Health Organization recommendations to prolong breastfeeding until six months of age. So that was the very first, as you call it, expose that we did about the, the marketing and, and the age of recommendation and the, the way that these foods are then not promoting or not supporting breastfeeding up to six months of exclusive breastfeeding and confusing parents about the age of introduction, which we know is around six months. So, And that's a huge problem here in the U.S. as well. We see that all the time with the recommendations for four months and parents are like, but wait, you're telling me you should wait till six months. But of course, from a manufacturer standpoint, if you can expand the net of parents that you can capture to possibly purchase your product and confuse them into thinking either it's safe to offer these foods, which we know it's not, or it's nutritionally necessary, which we know it's not, it does end up being very confusing to parents. And that's definitely still a practice in the United States. Is it still the same in the UK? Yes, it is. But things have moved. So there are, we conducted a follow-up survey uh, back in 2017 to see how much the market has changed and to report whether there have been any changes. And we found that there are less products promoted for four months. So things are moving forward, but there are still products that are saying four is okay. And yeah, there is a, there is a battle, but I think step by step, there has been more and more research being done, not just by myself, by other groups that are reporting the same issues. And we're trying to raise awareness that there is a need to change regulations to make it mandatory so that there are no real problems with the understanding of the regulations by the baby food industry. And I know that your more recent study is about the marketing and the use of these promotional claims on commercial baby foods in the UK. Could you share a little bit about what your study was about and what you found regarding marketing these products with use of health claims? Yes. So what we did was, again, a survey. So we went and looked at all the foods that were available in 2020. So that was during the lockdown. So the limitation was that we had to look at this through the internet. So we look at seven major supermarkets in the UK, and but had to visit two other stores that don't sell products online. And we also look at the products that were sold by Amazon. So that was, uh, we look at all the major supermarkets in the UK and recorded every single information that was related to use of promotional claims, uh, marketing claims. And we also checked that whether these were the type of foods that were being sold. So basically, we have two major groups. One is dry foods, which includes uh, snacks and rusks and biscuits, cakes, uh, all dry type products. And then we also had wet. So these are spoonable, uh, ready meals that are just ready to be given or in pouches, in jars. And with all the information on the claims, we had to find a way to present all of this amount of information. And we decided to organize by themes and following some of the recommendations and promotion of on, on claims that are not substantiated by evidence. So there is a whole document that WHO, the World Health Organization, has already proposed to try and control the use of claims. So we use that as a background to try and classify all the claims that we found. And we divided them into themes such as health claims. So those are, for example, uh, that a food is good for development of brain or nerve tissue or good for bone health, that sort of claim that is related to health. 
Then we also had nutrient claims, such as contains omega-3 or is high in calcium, that sort of nutrient, very specific nutrient claim. We also had composition claims, such as organic, 100% organic, no added additives, no added colors, no artificial ingredients. And then the larger group was to so-called marketing claims. And that was, there were so many different things in there. And one of the themes that we found within these marketing claims is ideals on feeding and lifestyle, the quality of the foods, texture, taste. And within the feeding style, we found baby led weaning. So as one of the themes that was coming up in the classification that we made. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. And that really caught my eye because I know the results of your study included that baby led weaning claims were found on 72% of snacks. And then there was a significantly higher number of BLW claims on snacks compared to other product types, which is just ironic if you think about, you know, the context of baby led weaning is not offering your baby packaged and processed snack foods. So I think it's so interesting in the United Kingdom that they're using that as a marketing claim because you definitely do not see that yet in the United States. I would say more in the home delivered meal space, you're starting to see a little bit of it, but it grossly misrepresents what a proper baby led weaning food is, but uses, you know, the trending terminology BLW or baby led weaning. So can you talk a little bit more about those baby led weaning related claims and why are they so prevalent on snack foods in the UK? The thing is that we found in a previous survey that we did in 2020 that the the marketing of uh, snacks has just increased. So there is a massive amount of snack type products that are available in the aisles to be purchased. So that has been like the growth of the market has gone from ready-made puree foods into this new area of snacking. So I think because of that, then there, there is more room for using this sort of claims. So we found phrases or expressions such as ideal finger food encourages self-feeding, Perfect for small hands, perfect for little fingers, great for your uh, little hands, finger food, grab, hold, munch. There are other things such as uh, related to hand and eye coordination. So great for development of hand and eye coordination, which is something that we know baby led weaning approach is aiming to do. Learning how to pick delicious finger food, self-feeding. Little fingers, finger biscuits, 
ideal for small hands to help babies feed themselves. So all of those sort of expressions we managed to identify in most of the snacks that, that were available in, in the market. And that's why we concluded that this is a very important way of promoting or marketing these snacks as to show that they can be used for self-feeding and for baby led weaning. And of course, the importance about using the term baby led weaning is to make sure from a research standpoint, I always talk about this with Jill Rapley, the pioneer and founding philosopher of baby led weaning is it is important that people understand what baby led weaning is and what it is not so that we can study it and research it using the same terminology. And so when people are throwing around terms, like I always laugh in the United States, there's one company that does a home delivered meal product for babies and they call it baby led weaning food. And it's literally very tiny, like frozen peas and carrots that you would find in the regular grocery store. And they put them into a yogurt cup and charge you $6 for the quote unquote meal. And that is not a baby led weaning food. That is not an appropriate size. It does not have the appropriate nutriture. And yet if you're just using the term indiscriminately, it denigrates all of the research being done that's really supporting this as a real and emerging alternative to conventional spoon feeding. So I'm just curious if in the UK, where you're researching and looking at these grocery stores, is there any regulations as to what constitutes a quote unquote baby led weaning food? I would assume not, but I just want to check. No, there are no regulations. So the, the whole marketing and you know promotion of infant foods and is, is quite open at the moment. There is no real structure on what can be done and that is free you know space for writing whatever you you want if you want to promote these foods in one or another way in what many times is just a packaged and processed refined grain product that doesn't have you know the same nutrition that an intact food would and i know you also talk a lot about the healthy halo effect and i'm curious how that plays out in the uk i know in the united states we have this overemphasis on protein and adults overemphasize protein and it gets this very undeserved health halo. And yet you see it trickling down to baby food where we know most adults get plenty, if not excessive amounts of protein. And babies certainly should not, we should not be prioritizing protein for babies because of their still developing kidneys, et cetera. So are there certain nutrients that kind of get this healthy halo effect in the UK that you've seen from your research? Yeah, yeah, there are. So one of the main themes that we see is the use of fruit and veg as one of the healthy you know connotations for a food when probably some of these foods are very high in sugar so if it has one of five a day then it's considered as a you know as a proxy of of a healthy food so fruit match is one of those that is really common the other one will be no added so or not natural occurring sugars that's another because there is a big issue at the moment here with sugar and the need to reduce the consumption of free sugars not just from baby, but from the whole population approach. So there are a lot of so programs trying to get to reduce the amount of sugar in the food chain. So that has been a major emphasis. I have not seen much in protein, but in baby foods, I haven't seen much, but in adult foods, yeah, that is a big thing here. And the sugar is an issue here as well. I know one of the areas I always, again, I'm not laughing, but you go to the grocery store, there's an aisle full of yogurt. There's actual baby foods from one of our major national manufacturers, a name everybody who's listening in the U.S. would know, and they make a baby food yogurt and it has added sugar in it. And it's like, how is this even legal? We know the guidance is no added sugars for babies until age two, and babies can eat real, full fat, whole milk yogurt without added sugar. 
how are they allowed to market a product that says it's for babies? And if parents, I mean, I don't think they should be getting the nutrition information from major food manufacturers, but if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't realize, gosh, not only is this product more expensive, but it's actually nutritionally inappropriate to be offering to your baby. And yet they continue to proliferate on our shelves and it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Yes, it is a massive problem because there are no proper, so there may be regulations and recommendations, but there is no monitoring and no reinforcement of the regulations. That is the issue. There are proposals and people know that, you know, these things should not be added. Uh, Here in the UK, you hardly find products now with added sugar. So it is almost out of uh, fashion and there is a lot of concern about what is in baby food. So they have slowly removed most of the sugars that were before. When I started doing this research, that was one of the very first things that we looked at, added uh, sugars, and we found lots of products that were containing proper, you know, added sugar, but now you hardly find them. But what has been happening is that they, what is accepted and is not really controlled is the use of concentrated fruit juice or any sort of puree type of you know, uh, fruit that is adding extra sweetness to the, to the food. And that's why this idea of naturally or curing sugars is something that they have been using because that is, again, healthier and it's helpful and, and it is natural. So that natural is a big thing. And we see that in the United States as well, a lot of this masking, especially the flavors of bitter vegetables, which is so important for babies to experience those on their own. And we'll have parents who go to the store and they're, you know, mom, my baby's drinking a kale smoothie. Like, no, you're not. That's applesauce with a very small amount of kale. Any of the bitter flavor compounds have been completely masked and bathed in concentrated fruit juice, which, you know, apples in and of themselves are fine. And I can show you how to make them safe for babies. But do all bitter compounds need to be hidden? You know, when you're just starting this unfortunate sequence of events where parents get in the habit of, quote unquote, hiding certain flavors. And then what message is that sending to the child that there's something inherently bad about that? And you're kind of perpetuating all of these messed up food myths. And a lot of it does actually start with some of these commercial products that appear to be healthy, certainly are just, I think, modifications of applesauce or pear concentrate. Absolutely. Yes, it's the same issue. It's this assumption that babies need to be sheltered from something that is bitter or acidic or sour. You know, it's, 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 I think it's it's an assumption that they can't really tolerate these flavors, which is lack of information about the way babies learn to develop their preferences for food very early during that period of first year, first two years, where they need to be exposed to these foods so that they learn to like them. And yes, the, the, the baby food industry is an absolute disaster in that sense because they don't sell these foods if if they are not going to be sweet or, or you know, appealing in terms of taste for a baby. But I think also there is there are some issues with using um, vegetables that are high in nitrates, such as spinach and or all of these green leafy vegetables. They are not good for processing, for ultra processing. They don't work well. And there are also some, some regulations about the amount of nitrates that there are allowed in, in baby foods. See, that's very interesting because we do not see that so much in the United States. Could you expand there? The nitrates are not good for processing. You don't mean from a physiology standpoint for babies and digestion. You mean from a food production manufacturing standpoint? From a food production manufacturing, they don't work well. They they don't uh, really, the structures don't work well in the processing. And also it's, it's not allowed to have too high level of nitrates. So they have to get rid of them. So what they do is to, not use them, basically. 
they use very little amounts of uh, spinach or broccoli plus processing. We know they, these are really, the cooking destroys completely the flavor and the smell changes completely. So you have higher so production of uh, compounds that are not so appealing in terms of smell or aroma, and therefore they are not included, basically. So you will not uh, find your kale puree or your kale unless it's heavily combined with apple or pear or mango or whatever else. It's a problem from the food processing perspective. So what they do is so we don't, they don't use it. They cannot control the total amount of nitrates that comes in, in this vegetables, these green leafy vegetables, so prefer not to use them. So with all of these marketing tactics that are always used to attract parents into purchasing commercial baby foods, you mentioned earlier with all the proposed changes, it doesn't really matter because none of it is mandatory. Is there anything currently being done to end inappropriate marketing of these products in the United Kingdom? Anything you kind of see in motion that you're excited about? Yes, well, there has been a lot of interest, not just from academics, there has been an interest from the World Health Organization about five, six years ago. I attended a big meeting in, in Vienna where we were discussing the proposal that WHO was preparing for regulations in terms of not just nutrient content, sugar content, and also claims so to end the inappropriate marketing of baby foods in general. So that proposal is there. They have also developed recommendations for the food industry in terms of the things that have to be considered, the amount of sugars that have to be considered for the formulation of baby foods. And there is a whole set of research already gone into this and people working on this. But we had COVID in between and things just completely got out of touch. So probably things are going to be retaken more to try and move forward all of these recommendations. At least the steps have been made and there are some documents, some um, recommendations, some frameworks that are going to support the baby food industry to think about reformulation. Here in the UK, there was already consultation with some of the baby food companies. It is voluntary and that is the problem that they are deciding to do it or not, depending on whether they want to commit or not. Some of them are keen, others aren't. But there have been some things happening. It's just that it doesn't happen quick enough. We have, on top of all of this here in the UK, as you um, might be aware, we had Brexit. So we left the European Union and the regulations at the moment are still in limbo in the sense of it has not been decided how that is going to work. At the moment, we are still working on the EU law in terms of regulations for the food industry in general. But I think that may change in the, in the near future. So there have been things. I think it's interesting to hear that the World Health Organization is almost using the same framework and model that they use to kind of try to, over the decades, tamp down inappropriate infant formula marketing as being coercive and, of course, interfering with the messaging about exclusive breastfeeding until six months of age to see that kind of pop its head up in the baby food discussion. Because certainly if you're creeping in to the four and five month mark and encouraging parents to buy a non-infant milk product, that's inappropriate. It's nutritionally inadequate. It's physiologically unsafe as far as choking hazards go. But once you hit six months of age, the reality is infant milk is no longer sufficient to meet the entirety of baby's needs. And so you do really see how you can open up this window 
for some unscrupulous marketing practices, which we certainly see in the United States. And so it's kind of like misery loves company. I love chatting to you about this because sometimes you think in the US, oh my gosh, the situation is so dire here. But yet when you look at the World Health Organization documents and their proposals, you realize this truly is a global problem, just like the problem of interfering with exclusive breastfeeding until six months of age is not a problem localized to any one part of the planet. It's a global issue. Absolutely. And and I think you touched a very important thing there that is this is a global issue. These companies are not just here or in the US, they are everywhere. So they are changing the way children or babies are being fed globally. And in the context of affluency, so we live in countries where we are lucky to have access to uh, health services, to pay food, but these ways of feeding children are expanding everywhere and traditional ways of being have traditionally being used to feed children are changing. So you can see that expansion expansion happening in, in areas where there is economic growth and it's going to really change the, the way children are being fed if there are no regulations, if there is no control. Hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dr. Garcia, we were chatting before, like in preparation for this interview, and I was kind of asking about, you know, what's the backlash or the pushback been? from industry regarding your research, because obviously you can you know, surmise that they're not going to be super happy that you're outing them and kind of doing an expose of the different compounds that are in foods that babies really shouldn't be have and some of the unscrupulous marketing practices. If you're being pressured by industry, and I know they've approached you to work with you and, you know, as a researcher, it's so important that you remain independent and not influenced by the companies. How can you use the findings from your research so that those companies can improve. Because at the end of the day, there's always going to be commercial baby food. And so that is a truth. And since it is a truth, how can we, as you know, leaders in our field of infant feeding and credentialed feeding professionals, how can we work with industry to help them improve rather than saying, well, we can't ever talk to them because we'll be influenced. But at the end of the day, they do need to make the products better. And they sometimes do look to your research to do that. Yes, well, my job as a researcher is, as you mentioned, to be generating evidence. So I try and keep independent as much as possible. And I do not establish a direct dialogue with the baby food industry because there are certain rules that I need to follow. So it has been a learning experience for me to be able to disconnect from that. And my relationship will be with organizations such as the World Health Organization. There are other bodies here, like charity-based organizations that are looking after the protection of infants or nutrition. So through there, I do that kind of bridge into discussing the issues that are important, but I will not really you know, talk directly to, to the food industry because I really need to keep as much as possible independent and you know, outsider uh, influence or so. It can be a bit worrying and you have to think about the legal implications. But as a researcher, I am confident about the quality of information that I produce. We have very rigorous procedures to monitor and to have double or triple checking on the data that we produce. And yes, so in that sense, I am confident that whatever I am producing is going to be of 
high, the best quality that I can. But yes, you need to keep independent. But I do agree with you. We have to establish dialogue with the food industry. Probably not me directly, but through some other mechanisms, because they need to be on board. If we're going to expect a change, then it has to be a change that is going to be negotiated with everybody. So, And if we're going to respect the scientific process and the quality of research coming out, because it's a huge problem in infant feeding in the United States, especially with regards to allergenic food products. So with this, the onslaught of these supplement programs for babies, we have a lot of our leading food allergy researchers who are in the pockets of these huge drug companies. It's like, I respect your research work up to a point, but I also see through your disclosures that you're taking money and consulting with them. And their ultimate goal is to sell supplements to babies. And you as a dietitian and a food researcher, you should be promoting foods for those babies. So it certainly is important to look for those overlaps because we want to continue to be able to trust the scientific process. But we also know that the ultimate goal of a commercial entity like a baby food product or in supplement companies is to sell their product. And oftentimes I think they do distort that scientific evidence that, you know, professionals such as yourself are working on. So it's nice to hear that you're working hard to stay independent and then working through the constructs that are set up, such as the World Health Organization, to help really impact change in a more meaningful way even though I think it probably could be depressing because how long things take, right? Like you got interested in this when your twins were babies and they just turned 13. And like at the end of the day, it's kind of still the same thing. Yeah, it's quite depressing when you think about the, the amount of time that it takes to, you know, bring a piece of research to life, the, the reviewing process. It's, it's a process that will take one or two years you know, to, to develop something. And then you, I try to promote as much as I can with, press releases and, and stories that are going to hit the media. And then it becomes the, the point of discussion, but then it dies away. So you really have to keep it going. Yeah, But I think at least there, when I started this, there was very little in this area. There were almost no papers that were highlighting the issues. And it has grown and it has grown in a, in a positive way because now we are more voices shouting the same problem. So at some point, somebody's going to listen to us, I think. So I keep positive about that. Okay, let's stay on the positive trade here so we don't end everyone feeling sad about the outlook of commercial baby food. But there are so many products for parents to choose from, and it can become overwhelming and oftentimes confusing because of those misleading claims that we see. It happens in the adult world as well. So it's just the same exact principles just applied to baby food. But for our parents who may from time to time be relying on commercial baby food, especially for matters of convenience or if they're traveling or in a pinch, what should parents be looking for when they're purchasing these products for their infants? Well, the, the first my, my main recommendation will be not to do it, but yeah, that's outside the, the, the discussion. Yeah, So I will say, uh, look at things that are not just very sweet, not pouches, as you discussed earlier, pouches are a little bit of a risk if given directly to suck. That is really bad for dental uh, health. They are usually very, very high in sugars because the whole uh, cellular walls have been completely you know, reduced or extra processed, ultra processed to, to make it more like a smoothie. So pouches, no sweet pouches, no mixed vegetables or those that are claiming that they are high in whatever kale or Look at the ingredients list. Uh, if you have a little bit of time, then check sugar content. So anything that is higher than 10 grams in 100 grams of food is going to be high in sugar. 
ideally something below five grams of sugar in 100 grams would be uh, something to look for. But it is hard to find them. They are really very rare. And yes, yeah, so if you see that it's good for babies, that if you see all of these claims, such as, you know, good for tiny hands, good for eye development, good for hand coordination, these things are not supported by evidence. There are no studies that are telling us, oh, yes, after you know, doing a proper randomized control trial with a good design that we see better hand coordination in babies. That does not exist. I have never come across any evidence that supports any of these claims so far. There are very few health-related claims. So that was the, the least group of claims that we found because to have a health-related claim here in the UK, you really need to have evidence that supports it. So they don't go into that way. But then there are all, all of these other messages that may be misleading or suggesting things that are not really happening. So yeah, don't believe in the claims because the claims are not really supported by proper research. So if you need baby foods, then you can use them, but in moderation, or not, not basing the main meals of a child or of an infant with baby commercial baby foods. And my concern too is, especially for our parents on limited incomes, that the value-added claims that parents oftentimes will be paying more for what essentially is less. Well, it's it's more processing, more money, less nutrition, less texture experience, more further removed from real food, is that it's not just a matter of personal preference. It, it's a matter of access. It's a matter of if you have a limited amount of income, are you spending money on these products that you think are going to help your child from a developmental standpoint? And the reality is that I teach college level nutrition and we're teaching our students about marketing of nutrition products, it's like, you know, what you see on the front of the package, that's just the commercial. That's the commercial. That's the thumbnail on the YouTube video and the clickbaity title to get you to click into it. But the meat of what is in the product is really on the side, the nutrition facts panel in the United States, the ingredient list. And I think for baby food, really narrowing it down because it can be overwhelming. Look at the added sugars. It should be zero grams. Here in the United States, we don't list our food servings per 100 grams, but Less than 100 milligrams of sodium per portion is a general good rule of thumb. And then look at the ingredient list. If it's yogurt, it should be cow's milk and the name of the bacteria. If there's a bunch of other stuff in there, including added sugars, and I don't care if it's unrefined sugar, sugar is sugar is sugar, you maybe shouldn't be having it. And so if you don't recognize the words in the ingredient list, then maybe that's not the best product for your baby. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's maybe demythifying the idea that babies have to have very special foods. You know, they can eat as many foods as we eat in a house that are prepared in a way that are, are not going to put them at risk of choking, which is really important. Soft, so vegetables that are not completely too hard to chew that they can just choke on them. But we can't, a piece of bread that is made at home or, or bought without too much salt, these things are, are quite good, you know, pasta, rice. Uh, there are so many different things that can be given to a baby that does not have to be something fancy or completely, you know, kind of sophisticated. And that's kind of the premise of baby led weaning, right? Is that babies learn to eat modified versions of the same foods the rest of the family does. And it's just crazy to see marketers really glomming onto that because as a practice, this is nothing new, right? This is a centuries old approach to feed your child that certainly predates the advent of commercial baby food, which in the United States was just the earlier part of the 20th century. Like I always tell my parents, you know, what do you think cave mama fed cave baby back before there was an entire aisle of pouches for you to overpay for what's essentially applesauce for? Like 
But from a marketing standpoint, baby led weaning is sexy. Baby led weaning is new age. It's the modern parenting. It's just feeding your baby real food. And I think if we get back to basics, what you said is absolutely correct. The babies don't need fancy, special baby foods. And yet parents are, are trained from a marketing standpoint to think that they do. And so I appreciate your work that just kind of sheds light. It's like uh, the emperor has no clothes here, right? Like this is completely unnecessary what's happening. Absolutely. And the next thing that we are working on, we haven't got the paper yet, but we are working on that, is the emotional aspect of these claims, which I find fascinating because it really, if, if you're going to have a company that sells something, you want these things to be sold in it as many as possible. And, and they get uh, really good support from people that know behavioral science. It's, it's an important element to promote things. And we see, you know, all these emotions, these feelings about the way you're going to be feeding your baby, the not feeling guilty about things. The, 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 there are so many, you know, kind of nuisances or underlines or things that are happening with the way the, the marketing is done. And I, so many value judgments on the front of a package. It's amazing. I don't know. How did they, my concern is your research is so compelling marketers are going to find it and use it for evil, which is to sell more products. But let's hope that doesn't happen. I have so enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you for your time. Tell our audience where they can learn more about your work and the issue with promotional claims on baby foods that you and your research team are doing there in Scotland. Well, yes, uh, I don't have a dedicated page for this because I don't have enough time. But if anybody wants to have uh, some more detail, uh, the university has prepared a very nice uh, press release story from this paper. It's, it's found at the University of Glasgow. You can also contact me through my email, ada.garcia at glasgowac.uk. I have also a, a Twitter account and I tweet things from time to time on the uh, at Dr. Garcia. And yes, so uh, if anybody's interested in reading all the detail and have a whole list of the different claims, I can also provide whoever wants to contact me. You can just type my name in any search engine under Ada Garcia and you will find. You are actually not that easy to find, I have to admit. This episode took a long time to put together, but I really appreciate it. And I'm going to link all of your resources that you mentioned on the show notes page for this episode. If you guys go to blwpodcast.com forward slash 250, you can find all of Dr. Garcia's social stuff. And then the press releases from your university are really nice too, because you know the research is so important, but sometimes it's very hard for parents to interpret that. So I appreciate you kind of breaking it down for us in a way that's easy to understand. And thank you again for the conversation. You are welcome. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Dr. Ada Garcia from Glasgow University in Scotland. She has some very interesting research. I mean, I am one who loves to just read the source documents and I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that they found that many baby food products that said that on it. So she actually does have some really good summary articles, the press release from her university, the actual research findings. I'm going to link to all of those on the show notes page for this episode. If you guys want to read more, just have to promise you don't use it for evil purposes to sell more unhealthy baby food. <laughs> oh, but that'll be all linked up for you at blwpodcast.com forward slash 250. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.